Hello for lover, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. This uh, dashboard will continue to get updated. It will be live 24-7. Pre-polling in Fiji gets underway with thousands of Fijians casting their votes. Also... You know, you'd be amazed that people are willing to pay for it because they need to stay connected to their family. Flight prices are looking sky high in Papua New Guinea. And later on... We found more often than not we are able to supply some training of benefit. Think you have what it takes to be a Coast Guard? We tell a Norbert Rear Admiral Michael Day about his life at sea and in the air. Day two of pre-polling for the 2022 Fiji general election wraps up. More than 8,000 Fijians cast their votes across 143 pre-polling venues. Rachel Nath has all the details. The Fijian Elections Office says it has successfully rolled out two days of the 2022 general election pre-polling. Supervisor of Elections Mr. Mohamed Zanim says an electronic dashboard has been set up and allows tracking of the pre-polling process. Mr. Sanim adds information about pre-polling stations has been made available through the media. So as the People will continue to take place. Uh, this uh, dashboard will continue to get updated. It will be live 24-7 and you can uh, access that information from the website. And I will now... The schedules have been published widely in the newspapers, given to all political parties and uh, independent candidates. And any person who wishes to find out the venues will be able to do so on the dashboard. 67-year-old Vilomena Likumotu was the first to vote at the Nasalai Village Hall in Siri this morning and says she has never missed an opportunity to cast her vote in an election. 32 multinational observers are on the ground assessing and witnessing the smooth operation of the pre-polling at 613 venues across Fiji. Pre-polling will be completed on Friday. The World Health Organization is determined to increase MMR vaccination rates in the Pacific region. Measles, mumps and rubella vaccination coverage has steadily declined since the outbreak of COVID-19 in the Pacific. The WHO's Pacific Immunization Officer, Dr. Hossein, says COVID restrictions has slowed the healthcare workforce across the region and is working to address the low MMR vaccination rates. I was just wondering how, how bad currently is the situation with measles and measles and uh, other diseases in the Pacific? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, b- basically, uh, uh, all the evidence of uh, what we have uh, since the beginning of 2020 uh, in the Pacific Island countries, like 21 countries, uh, except the PNG. PNG is not the in WHO Pacific part. Uh, it's a separate area. So uh, in the Pacific, uh, except PNG, uh, there is no uh, lab-confirmed measles cases uh, since the beginning of 2020. Uh, so uh, we have a regular program uh, for measles, uh, suspected measles case report from the government. Like we have a hospital-based active surveillance. We have a uh, Pacific syndromic surveillance system. So we have these two surveillance systems which report the suspected measles case or acute fever and rash case 
after reporting that this suspected measles case, usually uh, the government colleagues, they go for investigation and sample collection, and then they go for testing of the sample. So far, we have evidence that from the beginning of 2020, we don't have any lab-confirmed business case in the Pacific Island countries and areas. Uh, there was really having impact of COVID-19 vaccine, uh, a COVID-19 pandemic and vaccination response uh, that declined uh, uh, routine immunization program, uh, including the MMR vaccine uh, coverage in many countries in the Pacific Island. Uh, island. Uh, especially at the beginning of 2022, um, uh, we have seen the data, administrative data of 2021 from many countries of the Pacific. And we found that six countries having the low performance, low coverage for MMR vaccine. So we have basically tried to understand understand the try to understand the root cause of this uh, uh, vaccine low coverage, vaccination low coverage. And we found that, yes, of course, that there is the impact of COVID-19 pandemic and ongoing response to the, to the COVID-19 pandemic that mainly declined the uh, uh, coverage. Human resource usually they diverted for uh, the COVID-19 response including the vaccination response our immunization staff also um, very busy for conducting the covid 19 vaccination response and also i think uh, some of the uh, countries uh, in different times uh, they had a closure of the clinics for some days reduced clinical hours clinic hours there was a school-based vaccination program in some countries. The school were closed because of the COVID-19 community transmission. Some countries, where, when there is a community transmission, home visits, outreach service, or you know, catch-up vaccination were stopped or postponed. So that's why all these uh, all these uh, things uh, made some low coverage in some countries. At the same time, so we have seen that. Uh, because of COVID vaccine, uh, there was some hesitancy, as you mentioned. Uh, there was some hesitancy we found uh, that also affected. Uh, uh, but we are uh, we are working with the countries. Uh, we, we are working with the partners uh, that uh, to overcome. So basically, from WHO side, uh, we identified uh, uh, the low-performed countries for. MMR vaccination coverage, and then we are uh, making sure that uh, we had a several meetings, several uh, communications, and in-country meeting, and we are making sure vaccine are supplying adequately, and also we are making sure that the good plan to catch up those children who missed the MMR first dose and second dose so that uh, we, can, we could be able to catch those children who missed. The countries have been, countries have been working, especially we have seen that um, uh, the countries like a low-performed countries, basically they are conducting the catch-up vaccination in particular uh, areas where there is low coverage in a, inside the country or even nationwide uh, uh, catch-up vaccination. 
And we are also making sure that WHO has been uh, have been uh, recruiting the local consultant, international consultant, uh, so that they can help the government uh, to uh, conduct these activities and improve the coverage of MMR vaccine in some countries. So what is the WHO um, doing to um, vaccinate more people in, across the Pacific? Yeah, uh, as I said, thank you. As I said that, uh, we have identified the low platform uh, countries for MMR vaccination coverage. And we had a lot of planning meetings uh, in, uh, on site and also, of course, uh, remotely and also uh, regular basis because we have a country officials in different countries in the Pacific. So we have done a very good planning meeting so that we can develop the very good micro planning. Uh, to uh, to have a very good catch-up vaccination that children who miss to catch those vaccine, uh, children. Also, we recruited uh, uh, the international consultant uh, uh, and also national consultant to support those Ministry of Health of those countries. And also, we are making sure uh, uh, that uh, vaccines are adequately supplied uh, through UNICEF procurement services what we have in the Pacific, and we are also working with the partners uh, to support the uh, immunization activities as a whole. So WHO also giving somewhere uh, where, where needed uh, some financial support beyond our regular technical support. Flying is a pretty standard form of transportation in a large rugged country like Papua New Guinea. But as the country battles with living cost expenses, like the rest of the world, flight prices have soared further. Across Bonnet and PNG, Scott Whitey sees a cost increase in recent months. He told Don Wiseman prices can be prohibitive in a country where workers receive mostly meagre wages. Out of Port Moresby, the routes are, are pretty expensive. So, for example, going to Bougainville, you'd be paying upwards of about 2,500 kina for one way. Uh, and, and that's the equivalent of uh, traveling from Port Moresby to Brisbane uh, for a six-hour trip. When we talk about these extra high rates here, in terms of, say, US dollars, we're talking around four or 500 US dollars for a one-way flight. Yes. yes. Who can afford that sort of money in Papua New Guinea? You know, you'd be amazed that people are willing to pay for it because they need to stay connected to their families. And, you know, because parents feel obliged to take their children home so they remain connected to their ancestral home, people are willing to fork out that kind of money. But it's it's an expensive, expensive exercise. I mean, if you have, say, just three kids or two kids, kids even, and two parents, so 5, 10, 15, 20,000 kina for a holiday, including all the customary obligations. So it's an expensive exercise for a, a, a small family. And it, it costs even more when you have to repatriate a body. Somebody who's died in Port Moresby or somewhere else, because obviously you in Papua New Guinea, you can't bury that person on somebody else's land. So you have to take him home. That is very expensive. What is the airline saying about the higher rates? Well, the costs are in U.S. dollars. You know, the fuel costs are in U.S. dollars. The maintenance costs are in U.S. dollars. So that cost is being passed on to the consumer. And it's an unfortunate situation. The other thing is that if you check on the ticket, you you see a whole host of other fees that are imposed on, on the consumer. So you've got the 
national airports corporation fees, you've got the fuel excise, you've got the taxes, the GST, all that put on the consumer. And Air New Guinea's tried to market uh, cheaper fares and, you know, the fares that they've put out have come down as low as sometimes 200 kina. But that is also deceptive because they don't include the taxes and other fees that they're supposed to pay. So when they advertise, say, 12 kina, 24 kina per ticket, and you show up to buy that ticket or you you try to pay for it online, you find that there are other fees. So it's not actually 12 kina or 24 kina or 200 kina, as they say. Flying is very important in Papua New Guinea because there's a very limited road network. There's no railway system. People are reliant on flying or are using sometimes extremely unsafe ferries, aren't they? So I know this is the public airline. Has the government been called on to do something about these high fees? Yes, in Parliament, the member for Menyamia, Solon Loifa, raised the concerns. Now, he's not the first one to do that. There have been other other MPs who raised that concern as well. Now, it's usually brought up by new MPs who come in and they raise it during question time because it's one of the things that their constituents talk to them before they go into Parliament. And the, the answer has always been a, a similar thread, you know, with the government saying, we will have a word with the airlines. Uh, we don't have direct control over the, the ticketing costs. But the government does have control, and I've written this on my blog, Uh, the government does have control over uh, airline reforms, the government does have control over the taxes, does have control over how much the NAC charges and GST maybe. So there are other areas that the government can work on to at least try to bring down costs by a fraction. A U.S. Coast Guard commander says training in the Pacific region is tailored to what each island nation needs and requests. The commander of the 14th U.S. Coast Guard District, Rear Admiral Michael Day, is responsible for directing Coast Guard operations throughout Oceania, including Hawaii, Guam, the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands, American Samoa and activities in Singapore and Japan. Rear Admiral Day told Moira Tule Patela that some of the training can involve basic seamanship, through to how to maintain a vessel or navigation. I think the two biggest areas you see the Coast Guard helping with are uh, search and rescue. It's been a core mission of the Coast Guard for over 200 years, and it's probably what our DNA really uh, is about. Uh, The second aspect is IEU fishing, helping each of these sovereign uh, nations protect their fisheries, one of their most important resources. Would you say that um, IEU are the greatest threat to Pacific nations? I think two of the, well, it's one of two. I would say climate change is probably uh, right up there. The second would be IUF fishing um, because it's a, it's a means of uh, uh, survival for, for a lot of these uh, nations. A protein resource is a very uh, important uh, aspect uh, to these different economies and to the peoples of these different uh, island nations. Obviously, you do a lot of work with the U.S. territories in the Pacific region, but uh, are there, um, is there training? We do. We have a, a number of training programs. We work on basic seamanship to how to maintain some of their vessels, uh, navigation, um, and, and we really tailor uh, the request to what each island nation uh, 
needs, and, and, and they're all unique, and they're all very different. So we, we, we listen uh, to what they put forth, and, and if we can help, we do. And we found more often than not we are able to supply some training of benefit. And then we, we like to operate with them also um, so that you know we're not strangers uh, when we meet. And it goes back. We've been in the region for uh, decades now um, working with these different – so we have longstanding relationships that we value. What have been some of the requests made to the U.S. Coast Guard from from the Pacific? Yeah, I think um, uh, aircraft aviation is probably the biggest, and I think because the Pacific is vast, the Blue Pacific is vast, and and the the amount of um, territory or, or sea that we can cover with an aircraft is is exponentially higher. So we find that our, our C-130 aircraft is probably the most requested uh, aspect, and it allows us to get unseen. And uh, when or if we do find a, a survivor, we're able to work with that island to vector uh, someone out with, with, with their boat. So it's a very coordinated effort. Um, and, and that's why that teamwork of working together so that we're not strangers when we're trying to give direction. But you can imagine if a uh, small island perhaps only had one vessel and they're just searching a vast area for that person in the water. It could be a loved one or a relative. So we, uh, uh, by, by using the aircraft, we're able to cover um, – larger ground. And just in terms of bases, where is the U.S. Coast Guard in the Pacific mainly based? Yeah, so we're our two primary locations, well, three, I'd say, uh, American Samoa, Pongo Pongo. We have, uh, uh, but for search and rescue, out of Guam and out of Honolulu. But we and we do forward deploy at different locations our, our aircraft at different times uh, to work with these different island nations, work with uh, New Zealand, work with Australia. And um, so, so again, so we don't want to be strangers in the middle of a crisis meeting for the first time and talking about how we should be doing things. So we try to uh, – we'll, we'll get out uh, pr- pretty routinely and, and forward deploy and, and, and try to integrate in these different exercises as best we can. And I was wondering, just um, you mentioned training. What are some of the requests that Pacific nations do? Yeah. You know, what are they quite keen to, to focus on when they are asking you for training advice? Yeah. I would say the three training areas are, are seamanship and navigation. I'll, I'll combine them as one. Um, small boat maintenance, how to best to maintain the equipment um, that they have. And, and help with um, boarding uh, protocols for, for enforcing um, their laws and treaties and protecting their fish stocks. So those are probably the three biggest areas. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Pavitatile lava, Manuele Vayaso.